0: Word Radio On Demand, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Streaming live at wordradio.com. Joining us this morning, Michael Sierra Aravelo, assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of The Danger Imperative, Violence, Death, and the Soul of Policing. From 2020 to 2023, he served on the city of Austin's Public Safety Commission. Uh, Good morning, how are you, sir?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely, so I am literally looking at a story uh, that is developing now on CNN about deputies going into a woman's apartment in Texas and shooting her five times after they say they mistook her for an intruder. What in the world is going on with policing?
1: Uh, so I'm not familiar with the case. I'm looking it up right now on my end, Harris County it Pierce, Texas deputies shoot a woman inside pines of Wood Forest apartments, um, without knowing the full details of the story. Um, I think that it is very likely the case that officers are acting within the bounds of law and within the bounds of training. I think that we often want to think about these cases as mistakes or catastrophes that we never could have seen coming. I think that what i argue in the danger imperative is that police violence writ large from the lowest level kinds of violence grabbing somebody pushing them against a wall all the way to the most egregious misuses of police violence like a shooting of an unarmed or innocent person all of this is actually an expected outcome of police training and police culture
0: and so you know you you talk about acting within the the bounds of the law and acting within the bounds of training and so it sounds like what you're saying is that the, the law and the training are the issue that, that lead us to these outcomes. And so my question to you is, does law equal justice?
1: Hmm. So I would say that the law and the training are part and parcel of culture. And those two things work and talk to one another. Culture informs law. Law informs culture. But to your question about is the law equal to justice? The law can be many things, um, but justice is a moral claim. And so the law or a shooting or any use of violence that can be legal, it can be within policy, but that's not the same thing as moral and that's not the same thing as just.
0: So do the laws set up and, and going to your first premise, do the laws set up these these outcomes? Are the laws really meant to have these these violent outcomes and to. Uh, give police the uh, the authority to use violence and, and to use it
1: unchecked. So I believe that the way that we have systematically eroded the Fourth Amendment, which is the amendment to the Constitution that uh, puts boundaries on how officers can do searches and seizures and a use of force is considered a seizure under constitutional law. Um, those laws are designed and have been increasingly designed to provide officers tremendous freedom And tremendous discretion in how they go about using their legal powers to either to stop somebody arrest somebody or to use violence and so while i don't think that laws were necessarily designed to result in what seems to be happening in harris county what is very much the case is that laws are currently designed to even when officers make mistakes that result in injury or death of perfectly innocent people the laws are designed in such a way to provide Maximal protections to
0: officers. A lot of this stuff seems to be happening in in, in certain places. Certainly, it's nationally, um, and you can look at states that are run by Democrats, states that are run by Republican counties that are liberal, mm-hmm. counties that are conservative, and mm-hmm. you have the same outcomes happening no matter who is in charge. Um, in this case, in Texas, you know when when you go into an apartment, you shoot someone. Mm-hmm reload and then shoot them some more. That's not a mistake. That is, you know, I'm doing this. And, and when you do it, you must do it with the expectation that there will be no consequence for me doing that. How have we gotten to that point?
1: Mm. I think that's a it's a tough question. I think that what we are seeing in cases like what we're seeing in Harris County and other cases of not only innocent homeowners who are in their own home, but I, I believe in this case, it was um, the officers believe that they saw somebody with a firearm. I actually don't know if she did have a firearm or not. But the point is, is that officers are trained, as I describe in the danger imperative, to assume that any interaction is an interaction that might result in their injury or their death. And that is the baseline assumption. From their training to every day that they're in the police department to assume this about interactions. Officers, um, one officer told me he was quoting Mad Dog Mathis, one of the generals during, uh, during the war in Iraq, that you should be polite, but have a plan to kill everybody that you meet. And another thing that officers told me was something that they referred to as better to be tried by 12 than carried by six. Now for listeners, what they're referring to is that I would rather face a jury of 12 because of an illegal or incorrect shooting, then make a mistake in not using violence and being killed and having six people carry my casket. Officers are operating under the assumption that when rubber meets road, I'm going to take the steps necessary to protect myself, even if that might mean that the public pays the price. You know what's deep about you using
0: that phrase and and the police telling you that phrase is that that is the same phrase that I hear from gangsters on the street. Hmm. That's the same phrase that I hear from people who are engaged in gun violence. That's the same phrase that I hear from drug dealers that I'd rather be, you know, judged by 12 than carried by six. That's a gangster phrase. And so Hmm. is there a gangster mentality in policing?
1: Hmm. I don't want to get too far in the weeds as to what we even mean by gangster. I do think that the metaphor of of gangs can get us to a certain point. I think that what I can point to and what I describe very, very, uh, in a very detailed way in the book is that this emphasis on officer safety and officer survival, uh, it creates a strong amount of what we call in-group cohesions. Others might call it something like loyalty or strong ties between one another. And this feature of police culture informs things that we know from other parts of problematic policing behavior like the blue wall of silence you don't break ranks because officers have to look out for one another and within the context of patrol in the context of officer survival if you are not seen as somebody that will act without question to protect another officer you are actually putting your own life at risk because other officers might not feel so compelled to provide that sort of assistance to you
0: So uh, you know, again, when, when when I'm I'm hearing these phrases and I'm thinking about these issues, you know, the bl- blue wall of silence in policing, to me, is tantamount to omerta, right? In in mafia, mm-hmm. where you you're silent, you don't talk about what happens within the family, right? You you never turn against the family, you never turn against those who are part of your group. Um, mm-hmm. When you talk about in in group cohesion, it makes me think about. Outgroup homogeneity, right? All of them are the same. They're part of the outgroup, and so they're all mm-hmm. the same. And and it's the same thing that drives something like racism. And so, you know, are these are these problems that you have? These various mindsets that really are um, are tantamount to the same mindsets that you see on the other side of of law enforcement.
1: When you see the other side of law, when you say the other side of law enforcement, you mean like organized crime, like, organized like the crime. mob or same okay, thing. Blue wall of silence. Omerita. Uh-huh, uh, I got you.
0: Cohesion, outgroup homogeneity, racism. Like when you see these things like, you know, is that a
1: problem? I mean, it's certainly a problem. That much is very true. I think that we have spent a lot of time, not even in the past four years, since the murder of George Floyd, but in my lifetime, since the killing of Michael Brown and Ferguson, We've been trying to sort of um resuscitate this discussion about the culture of policing. We've been trying to get back to basics on, so what is driving this inability to hold police accountable, the inability to make good on all these promises of transparency and all these promises of accountability when officers do engage in misconduct, ranging from the small stuff like... uh Uh, Forging overtime slips all the way to the egregious misuse of force that would constitute brutality. And so it's a tremendous problem. And as I describe in the book, I talk about it as the inertia of policing. These are not new problems. People have been talking about this for a long time. And in particular, black people have been talking about this for a very long time. So I'm, I'm, I'm not saying anything that really hasn't been said when, when I point out that these are problems within the culture of policing. I just have a thousand hours in the field and can say that what we've been talking about for decades is still a problem in these places. And this is how and why it continues to manifest in the way that it does. So what is the how and why? So. As I mentioned earlier, it is a mistake to think that what we see happening in terms of police violence out in the world is the system malfunctioning. It is instead the system working as intended. And so over a thousand hours across three cities in the US, I sought to understand how do officers come to believe and behave as if their job is more dangerous than ever, their words, when the empirical data says that policing is growing safer over time. That was the central puzzle. It's actually getting safer. So why do you continue to talk about and train and behave as if you're under attack? The war on cops narrative comes to mind here, which rose to prominence uh, at the end of 2014 with the assassination of Wen John Liu and Rafael Ramos and the NYPD. And in short, the danger imperative, which is sort of these violence tinted glasses that I talk about in the book. This is the intentional outcome of everything from police training, where you're shown graphic videos of officers being murdered in the line of duty, all the way to daily lineup meetings where you're given a literal list of violent incidents that occurred in the city. Or when you crowdsource videos or crowdsource, uh, they're called officer safety bulletins about things like a shotgun hidden inside of a water gun or a pipe gun made of lengths of pipe and a shotgun shell. All of which is this sort of soup that officers spend all of their time in, which proves to them every single day how dangerous their job is. And to stay alive, they are taught to take certain steps. Some of those are very simple, like how they stand, and others are the kinds of things that people run into all the time, like an aggressive officer. But that gets labeled command presence in the context of policing. And it's necessary, they argue, to maintain control of the situation and ensure their survival.
0: So why, why is it then if, if the training is universal that Black people are so disproportionately affected by police violence?
1: Hmm. So the training, I don't want to go so far as to say universal, but it is, it is very similar, so point taken. Uh, I think that policing is embedded in a much broader system of structural inequalities. And so as I, as I write about in the book, and as I tell people all the time, you know, I could actually snap my fingers today and have a perfect filter for the quote unquote racist officers. So no more racist cops, right? Everyone's perfectly egalitarian. They don't behave in a way that we would consider to be racially or overtly biased. But that doesn't change the broader system of policing that doesn't change redlining that doesn't change segregation that doesn't change decades generations of structural disadvantage that lead to broken schools and food deserts and lead and all the things that we know contribute to crime and patterns of violence and so when you have this structure even if you have perfectly well-intentioned officers you're going to be systematically funneling police that are wearing these violence tinted glasses into minority communities, where the frame, as I describe it, these glasses are going to shift behavior in a way that disproportionately leads to things like violence. Now, obviously, we know that implicit racial bias is a thing, and we know that racism is real. So all of those things become layered on top of the danger imperative and its emphasis on officer survival. Can you train away racism? Uh, so I will have to admit that I am not an expert on that, on that goal. Uh, Mm -hmm. I will say that as I describe in the book, um, I think that, you know, the idea of procedural justice training, which is kind of one of those buzzwords or implicit bias training or legitimacy training or cultural sensitivity training and hiring more black and Latino officers and hiring more women. I'm not saying don't do those things. What I am saying is that you're missing the forest for the trees if you think that that's going to solve the problem of police brutality or solve the problem of inequalities and police violence what I really hope readers come away with at the end of this is that whether or not you are a reformer or an abolitionist we should be able to agree what policing is and policing is violent if they didn't have guns and they didn't have sticks and legal powers to use violence you could still give them a uniform and a badge, but they wouldn't be the police anymore. They'd be something else. And so I think that's a different place to begin our conversation around what next steps are, is, well, let's just take for granted that what the police do is violent, and it depends on their ability to use violence. And I think that that gets us to a different place when we think about what we want to see in terms of our public safety. What do you think we should we should see in terms of our public safety? I'm glad you asked. Uh, so I have some ideas. There are some low-hanging sort of policy fruit. Uh, so for those that want to be more on the reformer side of the spectrum, uh, as I describe in chapter one, there is a, a famous police trainer. He goes by the name of Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. He's the self-professed founder of uh, Killology. Uh, he's the founder of the Killology Research Group. And for decades, he has been training police across the country in how to catch the predator. And some of the training that I found in one of my field sites where I did observations, it literally lists in the resources for officers, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Grossman's writings. It says that you must become the predator to catch the predator. So low hanging fruit is stop doing that. Remove this stuff from training. This has no place in any modern police department and stop using taxpayer dollars to send officers to training hosted by trainers like Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman that preach what others have called a warrior mentality of policing. But at a much broader scale, I think that what we need to do is stop having this conversation about officer safety as something separate from public safety. So currently, officer safety is what dominates within police departments. And what do officers do? Well, they get guns and they get tactical training and they get vests and they get tools. I think that instead, we can actually do things that don't require police to even put themselves at risk that make communities safer and make officers safer. We can green lots, which we know reduces violent crime. We can improve lighting. We can plant trees, which reduces ambient temperature, which has also been shown to reduce crime and aggression. There's even a recent paper which shows that if you increase the number of behavioral health treatment centers, you can specifically reduce the number of assaults on police officers. So there's a lot of things that we can do that help the public and reduce violence writ large, which by extension would help police. And officers should be the first ones in line saying, we need help to reduce violence and reduce crime, and we can't do it by ourselves. But I think what we've seen historically is that policing, specifically police unions, they like to sort of keep this goal of public safety to themselves for the purposes of getting more funding and accruing political capital uh I think that we need to move away from the system I think that we can actually enhance officer and public safety together
0: that is uh certainly uh, uh an, an interesting uh point of view and and we uh we thank you for joining us this morning that's Michael Sierra Aravello. He's assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Texas at Austin, the author of Danger, Imperative, Violence, Death and the Soul of Policing. It's out now wherever books are sold. I want to thank you so much for joining us this morning on WURD. You've been listening to Word Radio On Demand. Listen live at 96.1 FM, 900 AM and online at wordradio.com.